Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Sage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're so honored we have Cato's Michael Tanner, author of The Inclusive Economy. Hello, Ed. How's it going? It's going great, Ron. Really looking forward to today's conversation. Me too. I, we're just making, we keep making our way through the Cato masthead. So this, there you is, go. this is wonderful. So let me read Michael Tanner's biography quickly, although this doesn't do him justice. But Michael Tanner is a Cato Institute senior fellow and heads research of, uh, into a variety of domestic policies with an emphasis on poverty and social welfare, health care and social security and entitlement reform. He's undertaken a major project to develop innovative solutions to poverty in California, the Project on Poverty and Inequality in California, which builds on his recent book, The Inclusive Economy, How to Bring Wealth to America's Poor. He's one of the nation's five most influential experts on Social Security. Uh, so I'm going to have to ask him some questions about that. But Michael, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Oh, this is awesome. Well, you know, I found Cato in 1980 before you guys moved to D.C. when you were out here in San Francisco. And I found you because of Peter J. Ferrara's book, Social Security, The Inherent Contradiction. And that book, it forever changed my view of Social Security and what we should do about it. But maybe we can talk about that in the last segment. Um, before we get into the California project, which I have a vested interest in, being lifelong Californian, born and raised here, Northern California, um, tell us about your book, The Inclusive Economy. Well, The Inclusive Economy represents, I think, the sort of the culmination of the research that I've done on social welfare policy and, pol and poverty over the years. Uh, basically, I went right back to the beginning and sort of asked, why are people poor in the first place? Uh, you know, if you were a doctor, you wouldn't treat anybody until after you've uh, diagnosed them. And I think that we've sort of neglected that. We kind of just kind of start dishing out the pills right away uh, on both sides. So when I went back and looked at this, I found that there were two theories, uh, essentially. The, uh, the right sort of argued that there was poor decisions uh, made by the by people that left them in poverty that uh, they have something called the success sequence that says essentially that if you get, finish high school, you get a job, you don't have children until after you're married, you're unlikely to be poor, and statistically that's true. Uh, the left, on the other hand, argues about uh, structural things like racism, gender-based discrimination, structural dislocation that takes place you know, with the dynamics of capitalism. Uh, all of which uh, also have a lot to, to recommend them. But in the end, I came down to the idea that maybe none of these are, are true or they're both true in some ways. It doesn't really matter. What we're doing right now is not working. And it's not working because too many government policies make people poor, uh, that we tend to force people into poverty or at least make it hard for them to get out 
And that's essentially what the book's designed to deal with, is what are we doing wrong uh, that keeps people in poverty? Wow, you anticipated my three next questions, but because I, I totally agree with you that the right seems to you know blame the victim and the left seems to blame the system, and that binary doesn't seem useful. But what do you think about Charles Murray's point about in coming apart that the you know the the wealthy, the accomplished, they don't preach what they practice. I mean, I, I think of Nicole Hannah Jones. You know, she finished her education, she got a job, she got married, and she had kids. She seems to be doing pretty well. So is, is, is there more to it than the success sequence? Well, I think that there's, say, there's certainly a certain amount of validity to the arguments in the success sequence. That we know that if you uh, drop out of school, about half of high school dropouts live in poverty. If you finish college, uh, you're very unlikely to be poor for any lengthy period of time. We know only about 3% of people who work full time live in poverty. Uh, even part-time work, about 15% of part-time workers uh, live in poverty. And uh, compared to people who are unemployed, the vast majority of whom are poor. And if you uh, have children outside of marriage, you're five times more likely to be poor than if, than if you don't have children or that if you uh, wait until after you're married before you have kids. So we know that there's a certain amount to that. But the question is, why uh, are those things are those things the case? Uh, just take, for example, uh, having children outside of marriage. Uh, you know, it made, George W. Bush used to want to put up billboards to, in the inner city to tell women marriage is good uh, in, a, in a typical Bushism. But the <laughs> argument would be exactly who are these women supposed to marry? It's not like there's this giant pool of inner city computer programmers that are just waiting around for them. Uh, you know, William Julius Wilson from Harvard estimates that, for example, there's a million and a half young black men that have been taken out of the marriage pool because they're tied up in the criminal justice system. They either have they're in jail or they're on probation or they have a criminal record that makes it impossible for them to get a job uh, that will support a family. So you have to look at the policies that we're pursuing and how much those things actually influence the decisions that people make. Right. You know, I love the subtitle of your book, How to Bring Wealth to America's Poor, because, I mean, we believe the only antidote to poverty is wealth. And why do you think the, the left is more interested in inequality? Uh, probably because they don't have an answer to wealth, uh, I, I think. <laughs> and But I, I personally have always been sort of agnostic when it came to Inequality. I don't like inequality that the government causes. I think we have to worry about that. I think that inequality that stems from government policies is something that we should certainly uh, want to uh, deal with. But poverty interests me much more. I mean, if we doubled everybody's income tomorrow, leaving aside you know distribution effects and inflation and all those other things, but uh, at least in theory, uh, you wouldn't do anything about inequality. In fact, you'd in some ways, depending on how you measure it, you'd make it worse. But a whole lot of people would be better off. Right. Uh, on the other hand, if you cut everybody's income in half, uh, people would be worse off, but they'd be more equal. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's something we really desire. Yeah. I, I mean, I know Deir, Deirdre McClowski, who we've had on a couple of times, makes that very point. Um, and then, Michael, you came into the belly of the beast. You came to California uh, and you worked on the project on poverty and inequality in California, 
I listened to it on the Cato Events podcast, which was fantastic because you guys listed like eight or nine sessions or something. It was quite a few. I don't know if it was all of them, but what was what was your motivation for doing that study? Because it, it was really a piece of work. Well, California is often seen as a harbinger of trends that will then go to the rest of the nation. Things sort of start in California and they move on for good or ill uh, out of that state. So it's a state we need to pay attention to. It's also a sort of a case study of the type of things I talk about in my book. Now, California is a state that has pockets of vast wealth. I mean, you have Beverly Hills, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, all of that. It's a state that has solid economic growth, actually. It's been growing at about 5% a year, uh, state GDP, uh, which is you know not the most spectacular, but certainly solid. And it's a state that has a deep uh, social safety net, uh, one of the most extensive in the nation. Uh, so both left and right should, should say, well, there should be very little poverty out there. But California actually has the highest poverty rate in the nation uh, when you take into account cost of living. So uh, clearly there's something going wrong out there. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting point about the highest poverty rate. I don't think most people would would intuitively grasp that. When you say cost of living adjusted, you mean by both the cost of living here, but also the benefits received, right? That's right. I use the, uh, the Census Bureau's alternative poverty measure Uh, Not the sort of uh, headline one you see uh, in the newspaper all the time, but there's a much better one that takes into account the benefits people receive, the taxes they pay, and the cost of living uh, in an area. Because after all, you take the the poverty rate around $11,000, $12,000, you can live on that in the rural Mississippi Delta very differently than trying to live on that in downtown San Francisco. Right. And we've also got 30% of the nation's homeless, roughly, and nearly half of the nation's unsheltered homeless, despite the fact that we've spent $12 billion out here between 2019 and 2021 trying to do something about it. Yeah, the homeless problem in California, I mean, it's very visible. I mean, you go to any city in California and you can see the homeless encampments in every park that's out there. Uh, places like San Francisco, it's become almost unlivable in the downtown area because of this. But the question is, why are there so many homeless people in California it's, uh, compared to other states? And what we found was, yeah, there's, there's two basic types of homelessness. The people you see on the street are often people with uh, mental illness, uh, substance abuse problems. Now, there's a certain chicken and egg there, of course, because a lot of that is developed after or made worse, at least, after you get to the street, because, frankly, life on the street sucks and people often self-medicate. But that's the more visible type of homelessness. But there's also a huge number of homeless in California that simply fell to the street because they couldn't afford to find an apartment to live in. When the average apartment in a place like San Francisco for one bedroom is over $3,000 a month in rent, uh, it makes it very difficult for people to find a place to live. And if you are lucky enough to find a, an inexpensive apartment and something happens to interrupt your income, you get sick, you, get, uh, you lose your job, whatever it might be, you can end up on the street very quickly. And we encountered people from government workers, teachers, and emergency room nurses, all of whom were living in their cars or living in tents uh, because they simply could not find an affordable place to live. 
Wow. Well, Michael, unfortunately, we're up against our first break. This is just flying by, but thanks so much for coming on. And uh, folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out our Patreon channel that you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash TSOE. That channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. It's a matter of mind. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh Oh My Fraud. Fraud. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise. We are thrilled to be joined today by Michael Tanner of the Cato Institute, author of The Inclusive Economy, how to bring wealth to America's poor. And Michael, I wanted to, to, to dive into the five sections that you have uh, or chapters really on the, the things that you think are the, the cause. And even and let's let's talk a little bit about the things that you propose that that might alleviate some of some of these things uh, with regard to, to criminal justice. You say that it's one of the most consequential steps that government can take would be to reduce poverty would be to that has it has little to do with anti-poverty. It's reforming the criminal justice system. And I, I think I heard you state on uh, uh, that just criminal justice reform alone could bring a 20% reduction in poverty. Am I, do I have that right? That's from a study by Vanderbilt, out of Vanderbilt University, I believe, uh, that indicates that. Uh, 
the criminal justice, I think, is emblematic of uh, what I found in the book is that many of the policies we talk about are not directly anti-poverty policies. They're not what welfare programs or so or job training programs or things like that there are larger things we do in society that contribute to poverty and criminal justice is, is one of those uh the fact is that you you burden someone with a criminal record and about one out of every seven or eight americans has a criminal record now uh and that criminal record follows you around for life it can prevent you from getting a job from getting a scholarship from getting into a college uh, even from uh, renting an apartment, because landlords can can check and not rent you if you have a have a criminal record. So that criminal record matters a great deal. In addition to that, it has a tremendous impact on families, as I mentioned in the first segment. Uh, it makes it hard for women in some areas to find marriageable men uh, who can support their families. Uh, it also, uh, or to be equal partners. Uh, it also, when marriages start off intact, with uh, one of the one of the uh, the spouses is in prison for any length of time, those marriages tend to break up. Uh, it's hard to maintain them, and then you again you end up with uh, single parent families, which is a, which is a big issue in terms of poverty. Uh, so you have a variety of ways in which the criminal justice system makes it harder for people to get out to get out of poverty. At the same time, we know the criminal justice system is anything but fair and treats everybody uh, equally uh, out there. People from low-income communities and people of color uh, have problems with the criminal justice system across the board, from the interactions with police on the street all the way up to uh, how they're treated in prison and how you know what eligibility for parole. So everything and everything in between, sentencing, uh, charging, the plea bargaining, you name it. And you, you propose a couple of different things. One, taking a hard look at the overcriminalization and victimless uh, list crimes. And uh, the the best example of this is, is, of course, what happened to poor Eric Garner in in New York, who was was killed over selling loose cigarettes. Yeah, I mean, I think that we can look at sort of again so the symptoms of the disease uh, in terms of uh, in terms of bad policing. But I think that we've got to get again, get to the underlying problems in many cases. Uh, and that is the you have so many interactions with the police because so many things are illegal. Uh, and whether you're talking about selling Lucy cigarettes or another uh, young black man who was killed o- over counterfeit uh, bootleg tapes uh, or, or certainly the war on drugs, which has an enormous number of casualties with that. The war on sex work, which is just a war on drugs applied to women, uh, all of those sorts of things uh, make a difference. And yet we saw a, an increase to this when people were proposing mask mandates during COVID, making it illegal. <laughs> it was only going to cause more interactions potentially with police over minor, uh, quote, offenses. Yeah, people should realize that anytime you propose making something illegal, you're, you're calling out RoboCop to enforce it. Uh, and, and that's not necessarily where we want to go. I think the, you know, defund the police was perhaps the worst slogan since the new Coke. Uh, I mean, you know, that way it was a terrible way to try and sell it. But the idea that every social problem shouldn't be solved by a police officer with a gun uh, is not a bad idea. If you actually look uh, in the California Project, we looked in L.A. and found that very few uh, police calls were actually for violent crime uh, in fact, the uh, minority were for crime of any kind. Uh, police were out there handling truant, truant issues. Or students, people didn't show up at school. They were out there dealing with mental health checks, which often go bad because they're not trained mental health professionals. 
they were dealing with, uh, and it's often the case uh, that goes wrong, with traffic offenses. Somebody has a traffic li- uh, brake light out, as we've seen go wrong. Those, those sorts of things uh, really should be handled by someone else. One of the things you point out is that uh, that you suggest we should make it easier for ex-offenders to re-enter society and participate in the economy. And there's a story out of Ohio that I'd like you to tell that is just a, a, a bizarre implementation of, of, of how this operates against itself. Yeah, this is a, uh, you know, your government in action sort of thing. Uh, in Ohio prisons, they, they have courses to teach people skills so they can get a job when they get out. One of the skills they teach is barber, uh, being a barber, which makes sense. It, it doesn't take the, the biggest set of skills in the world. Someone can learn it. Someone can set up fairly quickly when they get out. There's a demand for it. So it makes sense for the prisoners to learn how to be barbers. Except for the fact that in Ohio, if you have a criminal record, you can't get the license to be a barber. <laughs> it, it, you just, just got to shake your head at that one. So there's a whole lot of unemployed barbers now in Pennsylvania, or I'm sorry, in Ohio. <laughs> Oh, my. Uh, mo- moving on to, to, to the next uh, chapter in your book, where you're talking about h- human capital. Um, and you said, uh, you could say, quote, a handful of public training programs show some effectiveness, albeit in a modest way. However, none can promise to people to move out of poverty, uh, poverty cost effectively. Worse, sometimes even the most intensive and, and expensive are not only inefficient, but actually hurt those they want to help. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, there's uh, one of the most famous uh, government job training programs was the Job Training Partnership Act. Uh, uh, maybe I'm going to date myself. Dan Quayle used to talk about it back years ago all the time. Uh, Ted Kennedy was one of the sponsors of it. And when the GAO, I believe it was, looked at it, uh, they actually found people were less employable at the end of the program than they were when they went in because they were out of the workforce for a substantial period of time while they were taking the training. It could go on for up to a year or so. So they were out of the workforce all that time and they never really learned any new skills. So all it did was make them harder to employ. But, but really, with, when you're talking about uh, improvements to human capital, I think what you're ultimately talking about is improving the, 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 the schooling system in, in the U.S. Um, and one of the things I think I've, I've heard uh, mentioned a number of times on Cato and other places is that we really have to start to fund students and not systems. Talk a little bit about the, the, your ideas around that. Yeah, it's two parts of that. One of them is, I think, giving... Uh, more parental control of this uh, in terms of what they need uh, and want in terms of education for their children, uh, whether it's charter schools, whether it's private schools or parochial schools or other options that, that have popped up. Particularly now we're dealing a lot with uh, online learning because of COVID. We shut the, they shut the schools down. Well, that was particularly hard on low-income parents and communities of color that didn't have all the, the resources to deal with that, didn't necessarily have broadband, didn't necessarily have laptops that were available for that. We know that uh, students generally uh, lost ground during the, during the pandemic and that uh, students of color was much worse, uh, low-income students was much worse in terms of how, how bad they, they fared. Uh, giving more options to parents is uh, certainly, a, I think, a good idea in a lot of ways. But second, and equally important, I think we need to have more innovation in our education system. And you don't get that in a monopoly. 
Uh, monopolies are not known for delivering better services at lower costs. I mean, that's not their calling card generally. Uh, but our education system is essentially a government-run monopoly, and we, as a result, we don't see a lot of innovation, a lot of new ideas when it comes to teaching. And I think we need to do that, and to do that, you're going to have to blow the the current system up and uh, and make it function more like a market in education. One of the things that I often hear when I talk about this with others is if we're going to let parents uh, decide where to send their kids, what if they all, you know, these these people band together and and send their kids to a school that teaches that, you know, tr- the, the Trump was right and 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 the, the, the election was stolen and all kinds of crazy stuff. What, what, how do we prevent that from happening? Well, uh, you know, I, in the end, ultimately, I don't think you can. I mean, if people want to go to the crazy Trump school of accounting or whatever it is, uh, they're, they're welcome to do that. Uh, that that said, at least you do get it out of the public sphere where we're teaching all students one or the other. And uh, the the we're seeing right now with school boards, the, the fight over whether you wear masks, what do you teach, how do you deal with racism uh, in American history? How do you deal with all sorts of political issues? Uh, they shouldn't necessarily be political issues. They should be matters of individual parental choice. And in the end, the fact is that most parents want the same things for their kids. They want a, you know, them to learn how to read and write. The number of people who want to really want to go to the Trump school uh, is pretty minimal. Yes, I, I usually respond something like, yes, sometimes freedom, freedoming is hard. Freedoming is hard to do. <laughs> There are crazies out there, but, you know, they're, they're less than we think. Yeah. And I think most people really do want what's best for their kid and to send them to a school that, you know, is, is not going to teach them what, what skills to get ahead in life is just not going to happen. Of course, that only happens or when, when you have the monopoly in public schools. Yeah, I think that, that's exactly right. And uh, the result is the whole our whole civic climate det- deteriorates. Uh, and we start seeing people screaming at the school board members and, and all the stuff that's going on. That's just bad for us as a society. Yeah, so true. Well, we are against our next break. want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Become a Patreon sponsor at patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can listen to our bonus episodes. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Cato Senior Fellow Michael Tanner and the author of The Inclusive Economy. And Michael, getting back to the California project, um, you know, you talk about the housing shortage out here, and I, I really do think that NIMBYism, you know, not in my backyard, it, it shouldn't be our state motto, it should be our state flower. Uh, it, it, you claim that there's three and a half million houses um, shortage out here. And I know there was a lot of talk around the California Environmental Quality Act. Can you talk about that and its impact on the housing? Yeah, CEQA was intended to, to protect the environment from uh, large projects. It was passed, I believe it was a Reagan-era uh, mm. law. That, it goes back a long way at any rate. And the idea was that if you were building a new highway or putting up a sports stadium or things like that that might have an enormous impact on the environment, uh, that it had to meet certain criteria and people were, it included an unfortunate provision allowing people to sue about it. Uh, it's now being used as essentially a weapon against housing uh, of all types. Uh, and you, under the law, you can sue to block any of the any project, even if you don't live near it. So someone in San Diego can sue to block an apartment complex in San Francisco, for example. Uh, it includes provisions for what's called aesthetic environmentalism. So you can sue not because something damages the environment, but because the way it looks doesn't fit into the other neighbor environment in the neighborhood. So if you have the wrong type of siding on your house or whatever, things can be can be sued. Uh, just recently, in fact, they had to make a change to the law because it was going to force the University of Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, to cut 3,000 students from its student body uh, because they couldn't uh, have campus housing for them. Uh, they managed to rush through an emergency bill to allow uh, an exemption for universities from CEQA, but it's still something that's used far too often in terms of blocking housing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, Robert Reich attempted to stop an apartment complex in Berkeley because it would cast a shadow on a community garden in his neighborhood. Yeah, shadows are a big problem, uh, apparently, in California. Uh, there was another famous case where of a Russian spa in downtown San Francisco uh, where the spa members like to sunbathe nude on the roof. Uh, and apparently the apartment complex that was going to be built would have uh, cast a shadow on that roof. Uh, so they sued under CEQA and forced a settlement that earned uh, every member of the spa a tidy sum. 
So, so just a rash of frivolous lawsuits, basically, that enrich the lawyers. Well, and particularly the groups that, that tend to file them. The unions, for example, often threaten to file a secret lawsuit if you don't pay a certain level of wages or take on certain subcontractors. That sort of thing uh, takes place a lot. You know, Michael, I'm here in Northern California. I live on a golf course, and the golf course went bankrupt. And the developer proposed developing homes on it and putting maybe a vineyard in there, too, for a winery. And the outrage from the Homeowners Association, it, I, I guess I shouldn't be shocked from it, but it was like, no. And, of course, we stopped it. And I just think, you idiots, would you rather, have, would you rather be living in a growing city or a declining city? How do you get that message across to, to people? Well, what people would really like is for people to work in their city and then go home someplace else to live. <laughs> yes. Uh, because it tends to, uh, to impose costs uh, to, to build housing. Uh, you have fire, police, all that sort of thing, drives up property taxes that people worry about. And they also worry about who's going to be in their neighborhood. I mean, we should recognize the zoning laws basically uh, were began uh, out of a, of a race-based proposition. The first zoning law in America was in Los Angeles, but the second zoning law was in Baltimore. And that mm. Baltimore law specifically forbade you from renting or selling to anyone who was not already the majority uh, race on your street, on your block. Uh, that was copied in uh, Richmond and then Birmingham, and then it spread throughout the South as a tool of racial segregation. It was struck down by the Supreme Court in, uh, I believe it was 1917. I could be wrong on the date, but somewhere around there. Uh, and immediately after that, the federal government began to work with local communities on how they could achieve the same goal, uh, but not have an explicitly race-based zoning law. So they added the, the type of house you have to have, how big it has to be, how big the lot has to be, uh, and so on, all of which makes it too expensive for many people to live in certain communities. Right. And, and California, they recently changed some of their zoning, right, for the single unit homes um, that they would only allow you to build. Is that is that right? They just passed two laws, SB 9 and SB 10 in California. Uh, and it shows how far California had fallen. Uh, basically, what you can do under this law now is have a duplex. Uh, on your property. Uh, used to be that between 60 and 80% of California was zoned only for single family houses. Now those uh, those areas can have duplexes, theoretically at least, in their, in their neighborhoods. Now, whether or not they actually have duplexes is going to be an interesting question because the, all the other zoning laws are still in place. You still have to have a minimum lot size. You still have to be set back from the street a certain distance. You have to have a floor plan that covers a certain amount of ground in, in the next community. Parking spaces is a big one. You have to have so many parking spaces uh, if you build a new for every apartment you build. Uh, some communities are even creative. There's one uh, California community that recently declared itself a wildcat habitat, uh, protection habitat. Uh, so no new building could be done in the community at all uh, because you had to protect the wildcats. Jeez. And then when it comes to occupational licensure, we've done some shows on that. In fact, I think with some Cato folk and California is not the worst state in that regard, is it? But it's still bad. It's the fourth worst state. Oh, is it really? Uh, huh. It is. It is. So it's not it's not the worst, but it, it, it's pretty bad when you take into account the number of uh, jobs that are covered 
uh, how expensive it is and how much time people have to spend uh, getting those jobs. Mm. So it is certainly uh, certainly a problematic state when it comes it comes to these things. Uh, it covers a lot of jobs that are not covered anywhere else. You know, tree trimmers and and, and uh, uh, people like that. And often it makes very little sense. Uh, you have to spend more studies studying to be a cosmetologist than you do to be a tattoo artist, for example, uh, which would seem to be somewhat more invasive. Right. <laughs> and then you also talk about uh, criminal justice reform. And I just, you know, there, there was a lot of talk recently about the, uh, you know, the, the state uh, raising the felony limit on, on theft to $999 or whatever. But turns out, I heard you say this on a Free Thoughts podcast, 12 states have a higher threshold before um, a misdemeanor turns into a felony for shoplifting. And the, the Texas one is even higher. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, if it's the threshold, you would expect to see this this problem going on in, in Texas. Now, there's no doubt that there is an uptick at certain types of crime nationwide and in California in particular. Uh, shootings are up uh, pretty much everywhere in every big city, uh, regardless of what the, what the DA's policy is or, or who the mayor is, Republican or Democrat, shootings are up. You also have an increase in these sort of small-level shoplifting, uh, smash-and-grab type of things. The biggest crime in San Francisco is having stuff stolen out of your car. Someone smashes your car window and steals it. Uh, my boss, Peter Gettler, we were, we were out in California working on the project, had his laptop stolen uh, out, out of his car. Those things have increased, although why is, is an open question. Uh, there's a lot of scholars that tend to think this is a post-pandemic type of thing. We were all sort of crammed in our houses for two years with the various lockdowns and sh- shutdowns, and that that may uh, be contributing to it in its, in its own way. It seems to actually be something of a worldwide phenomenon in terms of actually of these small crimes increasing. So the reason why is an open open question. One thing that we should note that is a lot of these things that have sort of gone viral, some of these uh, uh, meet and greet, you know, meet up and steal uh, from the local uh, CVS type of things that have been going on. Actually, we're not in the cities that it's often attributed to. For example, one has been attributed to San Francisco. It's actually, I believe, in uh, South San Francisco or North San Francisco. It was, it was different DA altogether. So blaming the the district attorney's soft on crime policy uh, in L.A. or San Francisco doesn't seem to be uh, viable as an, as a reason. Right, right. No, that's a that's a fantastic point. And when I listen to these events that you did when you were out here, it seems like you got a lot of agreement about the diagnosis of some of the issues, like the sequel law and all of that. Are you optimistic about some of the reforms, and not just in the short term, like we've already seen, but like in the long run with school choice and criminal justice and other things, homeless. What I find interesting was that people were remarkably willing to listen to me when we were out there uh, across the board. And we spoke to everyone from the governor's office down, you know, city councilors, activists on the street, uh, human services providers, business leaders. uh, And across the board, they were all willing to listen to these ideas, uh, even if they didn't necessarily agree with us on some of them. Uh, Now, it may just be that things are so bad out there, they're even willing to listen to me. But... uh, (laughs) but they were willing to listen. Uh, and we are seeing some movement on that. You, see, you did see the duplex bill pass. It took six years uh, for, for Scott Weiner to get that bill through the legislature. 
even the day before I was in California and, and uh, act, housing actors were telling me, oh no, it's, it's going down, it's not gonna make it. And lo and behold, it passed uh, on a bipartisan basis. So there's things like that. Uh, we're working very closely with Senator Sidney Kamlager uh, out of uh, LA, he represents the Watts area, on some criminal justice reform uh, measures and some welfare reform measures uh, being introduced. So we're seeing legislation uh, take place the problem is if you can overcome the big special interest groups, uh, the teachers union, the prison guards union, the, the environmental uh, groups out there that are enormously powerful, spend a ton of money. And essentially you don't have a Republican party uh, out there. You've got a small kind of rump group that's gone crazy and doesn't have much influence. So it's all sort of uh, within the democratic party, various factions, and that's tough to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wow. Keep up the great job you're doing. And the state needs you. Uh, you know, you're an expert on Social Security. And when I read that, Peter, for our book, The Inherent Contradiction, um, well, well, that had a massive impact on me. And I was young and naive at the time. And I thought, oh, this is a no brainer. We're going to privatize this thing. And like the flat tax, I thought we were going to get after the Republicans took Congress. I, I was totally wrong. What would you do with Social Security today? Yeah, I think you've got to do, I mean, essentially you've got to reduce social security benefits, which uh, at least uh, you can scale that according to income in some way. I know that the lowest 20% of incomes get 80% of their retirement income from social security. So you've got to protect them. You've got to protect people who are retired today. But for young people who are not counting on social security benefits, you're going to have to reduce benefits. And then you can find a way to sort of fill in that gap uh, by allowing them a greater chance to invest privately. We know that private investment earns a much greater rate of return than social security can generate. Uh, we should give them more opportunity to that. The problem is that back, you go back to that Peter Ferrara book, The Inherent Contradiction, uh, is the fact that we try to make it both a welfare program and a retirement program, and it ends up doing neither one well. Oh. We need to separate those criteria. And if we're gonna have a welfare program for low-income seniors, then we should have a welfare program for low-income seniors. And then we should take advantage of the powers of compound interest and allow people to save and have a retirement program. That's a very different thing. Michael, do you still, real quick, do you still look at like the UK, Chile, and Singapore as examples of models that work? Uh, well, all of those have certain problems uh, out there. Singapore uh, seems to be the best of the group in terms of still still working well. Uh, Chile, uh, basically, they they people who have started not contributing to their accounts. Uh, unfortunately, tax evasion is a time-honored Latin American tradition, uh, and they didn't contribute to their account when they had the government-run system. Uh, I think uh, my friend Jose Pinera. Uh, one of the uh, mistakes he made was that he assumed that if you gave people a chance to contribute to this private savings program, they would. And a lot of low-income people didn't. They had other needs that they needed to meet. They thought were more immediate. They discounted their retirement uh, way off in the future and didn't contribute. So when the time came for them to retire, they, were, they didn't have enough money. And even the World Bank, which still favors a Chilean-style system now, says there's got to be some sort of other rung of the ladder that provides a sort of welfare benefit to low-income seniors. And I think that that's going to have to be built in. The British system ultimately collapsed amidst a fraud and selling scandal out there and is not really still in place. 
Mm. Okay. Well, Michael, thank you so much for appearing on the show. This has been wonderful to talk to you, and Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home. But I just wanted to say thank you. And, folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh Oh My Fraud. Fraud. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And once again, the book is The Inclusive Economy, How to Bring Wealth to America's Poor. And we are with the author, Michael Tanner, today on The Soul of Enterprise. And Michael, I wanted to talk about the, the, the fourth segment of your book, where you talk about the changes that you would propose with regard to savings and, and accumulation of wealth. You already talked about one of them, and that is allowing people to invest a portion of their Social Security in, in, through personal accounts. But one of the ones that I thought was most interesting and that I had not really heard of at all was reform and better use a little known program that is called the individual development account. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, look, this should be another kind of duh when it comes to uh, to anti-poverty policy. You don't get wealthy. You don't spend your way out of poverty. You save your way out of poverty. So we should be doing everything we can to encourage people who are low incomes to save, which is very hard, of course, obviously, uh, if you don't have a lot of, uh, of extra money. Uh, individual development accounts came out of the welfare reform in the 90s. And the idea was that it enabled people to save money, sometimes matched by the government, up to uh, in, in small amounts. 
uh, up to up to a certain level that they could then take out for things like education and business development and uh, other things that might help them get out of poverty. I think it's a little too restrictive in the way it, gets, it lets people out. I just, we should have one that's freer uh, in terms of what you can use that money for. Uh, right now, making it very difficult to take the money out means you're less likely to contribute to it if you have low income because you never know when you might need that money. Something sort of like a universal savings account that some people have talked about that enable everybody to save up to a certain level uh, uh, tax-free uh, and take that money out for any purpose at any time would probably go a long way towards encouraging people to save. And and the second thing that you mentioned is that we should simplify the current tangled knot of overlapping savings and retirement vehicles. Talk a little bit about that part as well. Yeah, that's uh, part of what I'm talking about with the universal savings account. You have an IRA and a 401k and a 403b and <laughs> Uh, they all have different rules and you can take this money out and then you're taxed on it, but there's other money you get taxed going in. Uh, you talk to somebody who, you know, has got minimal skills, uh, just barely getting by earning minimum wage. And you say, are you going to invest in one of these? And here's all the rules for each one and pick one. Uh, that's going to be very difficult for them to do. I think what we need to do is sort of simplify the program, not just for them, but for the middle class as well. Uh, and then make it easy with a simple one one style savings program you put the money in tax-free you when you take it out you pay taxes on it and you can take it out at any time for any purpose as long as it's being saved uh it's tax-free and that's a good thing well th those sound like good ideas and i'm just wondering if if uh you know one one of the i guess not so good ideas that i've heard recently is, is having the post office become a bank of sorts but could 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 some of your ideas be merged with that post office idea to maybe create something that might work uh well i i have to say i have not looked at the post office bank i know there's uh, efforts to create several city banks i know that in la they tried to create a los angeles bank that was going to be run and funded by the city. I don't think that ever got off the ground. Uh, you know, I think I want to keep the government as far away from my money as I can possibly <laughs> do uh, do so. And the post office hasn't exactly proven itself the model of efficiency uh, so far. No, no. It's what, what it, the, the joke is, it's, it's a pension fund that happens to deliver, le deliver letters occasionally. <laughs> Uh, wanted to, to ask you that in, in in 2019, Arizona passed a law allowing for reciprocity with with many of, of the things that you talk about with regard to uh, licensing. Has has there been any impact that you've seen, or did COVID kind of get in the way of that? Yeah, I think it's too early to really tell. COVID really uh, made a, a dent in uh, the studies of that. Uh, but Arizona has really been a leader uh, in terms of occupational licensing. And what they said essentially was if you got a license in, in another state and then you move to Arizona, they'll recognize your license. You don't have to start all over again from scratch, uh, which makes sense. Uh, a lot of states are doing this in terms of military spouses, which is where it's a big issue for them. Arizona went further and did it for everybody. Arizona also passed a law that said the licensing boards themselves have to have a majority of lay personnel on it. It can't simply be made up of people who are practicing the profession and have a vested interest, therefore, in keeping other people out. 
and of course, we actually saw the 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 breakdown of a lot of these exclusionary laws during COVID itself because people were trying to get medical professionals to come into their states, and and I, I thought it was bizarre that you know now at a time when when we're having uh, this this need to make sure that we're we're actually taking care of of, of people who are sick that you would lessen if you if, I mean if you believe in lessening the restrictions would wouldn't it make sense to do it when there's not a pandemic going on as well. Yeah, Arizona was a leader in that as well. My friend Jeff Singer from Cato worked uh, very hard on that issue. Uh, you had places that had real shortages of doctors and nurses. I mean, that was the whole idea of, you know, two weeks to, to flatten the curve that became two years to flatten the curve or whatever it was, was that the danger of overrunning the hospitals, which was very true. There were hospitals that simply didn't have enough doctors to treat the patients that were coming in. Uh, but you couldn't bring people in from out of state. Uh, you couldn't do telemedicine. You couldn't bring nurses in. Uh, you had all sorts of restrictions on these sorts of things. Uh, a number of states did make, did sort of waive them, but often only on a temporary basis. Uh, if it worked then, it would, they should keep it. Yeah. And the last section of your book is on freeing the market. And of course, you open this section by by, by quoting and talking about one of our, our favorite authors, Deirdre McCloskey, who's now, as you mentioned, a visiting fellow at, at Cato. And talk a little bit about the, the importance of truly freeing freeing the market as you see it. Yeah. As, as Dr. McCloskey makes clear, Nothing has raised more people out of poverty than uh, free market capitalism over the years. That if you look back in history, there's a, the great hockey stick chart that shows that through most of human history, mankind was miserably, desperately poor. And we were ruled over by a tiny elite that was slightly less miserably, desperately poor. And then about three, 400 years ago, something happened. And you get the, the hockey stick where the wealth in every society shoots up and that wealth uh, generation is essentially the advent of modern free market capitalism and therefore we what we really need if we want to lift people out of poverty is we need to have more free markets now that's not necessarily the same thing as being pro-business that's not about monopolies that's not about granting special favors it's about competition and innovation and entrepreneurship and we really need to encourage that we also need to remove the barriers in order to allow everybody to participate. It doesn't do any good to have economic growth if the benefits only go to the people at the top. You want to let the people at the bottom get in on that economic growth. And that means things like we're talking about in licensing laws, occupational zoning, getting rid of minimum wage laws, dealing with the high cost of child care, all those things that are barriers to people playing in the, uh, in the market. Yes, and I love, of course, the fact that you open that chapter with a quote from none other than Barack Obama, who said, the free market is the greatest producer of wealth in history. It has lifted billions out of people out of poverty. Of course, he then, I think, went on to say in either that speech or another that you didn't build this. So <laughs> he's a bundle of contradictions. He's a politician, isn't that? Going to, uh... Well, Michael Tanner, thank you so much for appearing on the show today. Ron and I had a great time talking to you and keep up the great work at Cato. Yeah, for sure. Ed, I'll see you in 167 hours.
This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, at, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes on uh, our conversation today with Michael Tanner and where you can find his books and other of his writings. And also you can contact either me or Ed at asktsoe at barrisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. 